Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Kate Norris. And I'm Thomas Craft. Whether you're pitching your business, speaking at a work meeting, or on the stage, we're here to help you present with clarity and confidence. Episode. Thanks for that warm introduction, Taylor. Today we're doing a speech breakdown from a TED Talk in 2018. This is a talk by Alex Honnold, who's a bit of a famous rock climber, and he starred in the 2018 film Free Solo about his climb up El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. And this TED Talk, he actually talks about that and how he did it. So we're going to listen to Alex's TED Talk here, and uh, Kate and I are going to pause. Whenever we see something noteworthy that he's doing that we really love, or maybe that we can learn from. So here is Alex Honnold at TED 2018 with How I Climbed a 3,000 Foot Vertical Cliff Without Ropes. Hello, I'd like to show you guys 30 seconds of the best day of my life. Okay, so we have started with a video in a podcast. <laughs> Good choice this time. But basically it is him climbing up a vertical rock face and you can see he is exceptionally high up and he has no ropes attached to him. And quite frankly, not really much happens other than he takes a few steps and we're basically just getting the perspective that he's climbed a vertical rock face without ropes. Gives us some great perspective and sets up the entire speech. And it's giving a good perspective of maybe the extreme nature of this act that he's done without really giving away any sort of the story because we already know what the title of the speech is. We already know what the rock climbing guy is going to talk about. I think it's a good setup. It's a good visual. It almost gives him credibility and proves that he is the right person to be talking about this. He doesn't have to set any of that up with mm. his speech. He just you've straight away got a video of him doing the thing. So that was El Capitan in California's Yosemite National Park. And in case you couldn't tell, I was climbing by myself without a rope, a style of climbing known as free soloing. That was the culmination of a nearly decade-long dream. And in the video, I'm over 2,500 feet off the ground. Seems scary? Yeah, it is. Which is why I spent so many years dreaming about soloing El Cap and not actually doing it. But on the day that that video was taken, it didn't feel scary at all. It felt as comfortable and as natural as a walk in the park which is what most folks were doing in Yosemite that day. We're only about a minute into this speech and he's got a really nice introduction. I really like the words that he's saying. The issue I have with it here is it's exceptionally, it feels a little bit relentless and a bit droney. The word I want to use is choo-choo. And that's, one of, that's something I talk about with choo-choo, which is you get somebody who's got this script in their mind and they're just chugging through it like a, like a train would choo-choo, like it's just going, nothing is going to get in its way, it's the same speed, nothing's changing, it's just, it just keeps on choo-chooing. Yeah. Sometimes people do really amazing feats and then they're asked to speak about it, sometimes at places like TED. So do you think it's a case, Kate, of this is a guy whose specialty is in rock climbing and something else, he's been asked to speak... And to compensate for that, the help he has been given has resulted in something that's maybe a bit over-rehearsed. He's got it a bit too scripted in his mind. Oh, yeah, that's clearly to me exactly what's happened. I don't think it's bad. It's just recognisable that this guy has a script, whereas often with especially Ted, 
even though we know it's rehearsed and scripted, it still manages to sound like they're just talking, just having a conversation. Whereas with Alex, it sounds scripted. Which I think is just recognition that public speaking's hard. If it's not your thing and you've had maybe minimal experience doing it before. Yeah. Which is what most folks were doing in Yosemite that day. Today I'd like to talk about how I was able to feel so comfortable and how I overcame my fear. I'll start with a very brief version of how I became a climber and then tell the story of my two most significant free solos. They were both successful, which is why I'm here. But the first... <laughs> but the first felt largely unsatisfying. Ah, interesting. So he was not expecting the laugh then. No. So he had the joke there. These climbs were both successful, that's why I'm here. And then he just kept going. Attempted to keep going there, yeah. Yeah, he didn't pause and give the audience a chance to laugh. Now, chances are this is one of two reasons. First of all, probably he hasn't practiced this in front of an audience, Mm. a larger audience. So he's probably given this in front of smaller groups who maybe smirk at that joke or laugh a little bit and it's not enough to stop him and make him take a moment for that laughter to happen. And when you're in a larger audience, when you've got a bigger group of people, you actually have to wait for that laughter to die down because people laugh at different rates and the laughter kind of goes on a little bit longer. The bigger the crowd, the longer the laugh happens. It's not that it's a funnier joke. It's just an outcome of a bigger audience. The second thing, perhaps it is a case that he has said that joke that many thousands of times (laughs) to either himself, to his audiences, and no one laughs at it anymore. And you kind of forget after you've done a joke so many times, you forget that it's funny. It no longer has any surprise value. It doesn't become unfunny. It just becomes really normal. It's it's no longer a joke. But credit where credit's due. The laugh did happen and he did pause and then he restarted that sentence that got stepped on. Yeah, absolutely. But again, I think that's just a symptom of the over-rehearsal that we're seeing here. Not a bad thing, just a comment. The first felt largely unsatisfying, whereas the second, El Cap, was by far the most fulfilling day of my life. Through these two climbs, you'll see my process for managing fear. So I started climbing in a gym when I was around 10 years old, which means that my life has been centered on climbing for more than 20 years. After nearly a decade of climbing mostly indoors, I made the transition to the outdoors and gradually started free soloing. I built up my comfort over time and slowly took on bigger and more challenging walls. And there have been many free solos before me, so I had plenty of inspiration to draw from. But by 2008, I'd repeated most of their previous solos in Yosemite and was starting to imagine breaking into new terrain. The obvious first choice was Half Dome, an iconic 2,000-foot wall that lords over the east end of the valley. The problem, though also the allure, was that it was too big. What I like here is he gives this backstory about how he got into climbing. It's a story that starts when he's 10 and lasts two decades. There's a a lot of story happens there, but it's arguably not that important. And he kind of just breezes through it. He gives us the details that are important without getting bogged down into the detail. I feel like he's answering the big questions that I would certainly have, which is, how long have you been climbing? Have you always done it outdoors? Yeah. Have you done any other big mountains? Mm. Just the big questions. And just here where we've paused, like most TED speakers, he has a PowerPoint going. And it's just a picture of Half Dome. Because I imagine anybody who's not been to Yosemite, which is certainly me. Have you been there? Mm -mm. No, probably a lot in the audience, I would imagine, too. That's a really good picture of how foreboding that rock is. That's a very cool picture, actually. I would have had no idea what he was talking about without the picture. Cool. The problem though also the allure, was that it was too big. I didn't really know how to prepare for potential free solo. So I decided to skip the preparations and just go up there and have an adventure. (laughs) I figured I would rise to the occasion, which, unsurprisingly, was not the best strategy. I did at least climb the route roped up with a friend two days before, just to make sure that I knew roughly where to go and that I could physically do it. But when I came back by myself two days later, 
I decided that I didn't want to go that way. I knew that there was a 300-foot variation that circled around one of the hardest parts of the climb. I suddenly decided to skip the hard part and take the variation, even though I'd never climbed it before. But I immediately began to doubt myself. Imagine being by yourself in the dead center of a 2,000-foot face, wondering if you're lost. A small storytelling detail here. Again, we have a photo, and it's him. That's not a ledge. That's like a tiny crack in a rock, and you can't even see the ground. And clearly, he's been there, and this is normal for him. And he's asking me to imagine being in that rock face, scared and alone. And I have no anchor on that. So if we're going to talk storytelling, because he's been there, because he's lived it, I would like him to tell it from his perspective. I think we said a very similar thing about... Chris Hadfield. Chris Hadfield is like, I can't imagine being in space either. I can't imagine being on the side of Half Dome. Please just tell me what it was like for you. I found myself alone on the side of this mountain, scared, unprepared. Mm. Yeah, how many thousand feet above the floor? I can't imagine it. Please don't ask your audience to if it is actually unimaginable for most of them. Mm. Imagine being by yourself in the dead center of a 2,000-foot face, wondering if you're lost. <laughs> Thankfully... It was pretty much the right way, and I circled back to the route. I was slightly rattled. I was pretty rattled, but I tried not to let it tried not to let it bother me too much because I knew that all the hardest climbing was up at the top. I needed to stay composed. For someone who was very scripted, I felt like that was a moment of authenticity. It looked like a moment of joy. Yeah, it was. You know, I was slightly rattled. The script says I was slightly rattled, and then he kind of recognized what he said and sort of went. Actually, I was really rattled. And it was a moment of, of being back in that moment. I liked it. And that's how storytelling should happen, is you shouldn't be telling stories. You should be reliving stories. Mm. So while he's standing on this stage, in his mind, he needs to be on that rock face, he needs to be visualising it and having some indication and some memory of the emotions he was feeling at that time. Because as a speaker, yeah. if you can't feel the emotion in the story, your audience never will. And so, yes, these aren't maybe amazing emotions of being scared and being rattled, but please feel them so that you can communicate that to your audience. I needed to stay composed. It was a beautiful September morning, and as I climbed higher, I could hear the sounds of tourists chatting and laughing on the summit. They'd all hiked up the normal trail on the back, which I was planning on using for my descent. But between me and the summit lay a blank slab of granite. There were no cracks or edges to hold onto, just small ripples of texture of a slightly less than vertical wall. I had to trust my life to the friction between my climbing shoes and the smooth granite. I carefully balanced my way upward, shifting my weight back and forth between the small smears. But then I reached a foothold that I didn't quite trust. Two days ago, I had just stepped right up on it, but that had been with a rope on. Now it felt too small and too slippery. I doubted that my foot would stay on if I waited it. I considered a foot further to the side, but it seemed worse. I switched my feet and tried a foot further out. It seemed even worse. I started to panic. I could hear people laughing on the summit just above me. I wanted to be anywhere but on that slab. My mind was racing in every direction. I knew what I had to do, but I was just too afraid to do it. I just had to stand up on my right foot. And so, after what felt like an eternity, I accepted what I had to do, and I stood up on the right foot. And it didn't slip, and so I didn't die. And that move marked the end of the hardest climbing. And so I charged from there towards the summit. See, again, we're in that rehearsed, robotic mm. storytelling, mm. and I really wish that he was reliving it, that maybe there was some more variation to his tone, to his pace. Just live it, yeah. Sometimes I see people tell a story like this, and I, I kind of just want to grab them by the shoulders and shake them a bit and say, just tell me what happened. Stop reading your script in your mind, yeah. 
Because it's, it's a cool story. Um, oh, and, and you it's know such what? a cool story. It's, it's a unique story. And so I charged from there towards the summit. And so normally when you summit Half Dome, you have a rope and a bunch of climbing gear on you, and tourists gasp and they flock around you for photos. This time I popped over the edge shirtless, panting, jacked. I was amped, but nobody batted an eye. I looked like a lost hiker that was too close to the edge. I was, I was surrounded by people talking on cell phones and having picnics. I felt like I was in a mall. I took off my tight climbing shoes and started hiking back down. And that's when people stopped me. You're hiking barefoot? That's so hardcore. <laughs> I didn't bother to explain, but... What I like that he's done here is we've had this, this moment of tension in the story about being lost, about being um, unsure and being a bit scared on the face of the mountain. And then he's popped up, people are laughing, he's made a couple of jokes and it's just released that tension for the audience. Yep. I didn't bother to explain, but... <laughs> that night in my climbing journal, I duly noted my free solo of Half Dome, but I included a frowny face and a comment, do better, question mark. I'd succeeded in the solo, and it was celebrated as a big first in climbing. Some friends later made a film about it. But I was unsatisfied. I was disappointed in my performance because I knew that I'd gotten away with something. I didn't want to be a lucky climber, I wanted to be a great climber. I actually took the next year or so off from free soloing because I knew that I shouldn't make a habit of relying on luck. But even though I wasn't soloing very much, I'd already started to think about El Cap. It was always in the back of my mind as the obvious crown jewel of solos. It's the most striking wall in the world. Each year for the next seven years, I'd think, this is the year that I'm going to solo El Cap. And then I would drive into Yosemite, look up at the wall, and think, no freaking way. It was... <laughs> Clever thing he did here is he said he wanted to go up El Capitan, it's the most striking wall in the world. He clicked up a photo of it that is a striking image of a very steep cliff or mountain. And then he just had a pause there where you could actually look at it and maybe just absorb that, oh yeah, he's going to go up that, all right. Moment to absorb the nice visual that he put up. That's interesting because I don't find that photo impressive. That looks three times as high as the trees, that angle. That's not impressive to me. It's pretty, but it's not impressive. It doesn't look scary. You've never climbed a mountain before, have you? Yeah. No, good God, no. That sounds like nature. It was... It's too big and too scary. But eventually I came to accept that I wanted to test myself against El Cap. It represented true mastery. But I needed it to feel different. I didn't want to get away with anything or barely squeak by. This time I wanted to do it right. The thing that makes El Cap so intimidating is the sheer scale of the wall. Most climbers take three to five days to ascend the 3,000 feet of vertical granite. The idea of setting out up a wall of that size with nothing but shoes and a chalk bag seemed impossible. 3,000 feet of climbing represents thousands of distinct hand and foot movements, which is a lot to remember. Many of the moves I knew through sheer repetition. I'd climbed El Cap maybe 50 times over the previous decade with a rope. But this photo shows my preferred method of rehearsing the moves. I'm on the summit, about to rappel down the face with over 1,000 feet of rope to spend the day practicing by myself. Once I found sequences that felt secure and repeatable, I had to memorize them. I had to make sure that they were so deeply ingrained within me that there was no possibility of error. I didn't want to be up on the wall wondering if I was going the right way or using the best holes. I needed everything to feel automatic. Climbing with a rope is a largely physical effort. You just have to be strong enough to hold on and make the movements upward. But free soloing plays out more in the mind. The physical effort is largely the same. Your body is still climbing the same wall. But staying calm and performing at your best when you know that any mistake could mean death requires a certain kind of mindset. 
<laughs> That's not supposed to be funny, but but it is. It is. Yeah. I love that moment. He gets this laugh that he's not expecting, and you see him break this mechanical delivery, and it's really nice to see. Yeah, he actually stops and smiles as he acknowledges that no, it wasn't meant to be a laugh. <laughs> yeah. That's not supposed to be funny, but but it is. It is. Yeah. I work to cultivate that mindset through visualization, which basically just means imagining the entire experience of soloing the wall. Partially, that was to help me remember all the holds, but mostly, visualization was about feeling the texture of each hold in my hand and imagining the sensation of my leg reaching out and placing my foot just so. I'd imagine it all like a choreographed dance, thousands of feet up. The most difficult part of the whole route was called the boulder problem. It was about 2,000 feet off the ground and consisted of the hardest physical moves on the whole route. Long poles between poor handholds with very small, slippery feet. This is what I mean by a poor handhold: an edge smaller than the width of a pencil, but facing downward, that I had to press up into with my thumb. But that wasn't even the hardest part. The crux culminated in a karate kick with my left foot over to the inside of an adjacent corner, a maneuver that required a high degree of precision and flexibility, enough so that I'd been doing a nightly stretching routine for a full year ahead of time to make sure that I could comfortably make the reach with my leg. As I practiced the moves. My visualization turned to the emotional component of a potential solo. Basically, what if I got up there and it was too scary? What if I was too tired? What if I couldn't quite make the kick? I had to consider every possibility while I was safely on the ground, so that when the time came and I was actually making the moves without a rope, there was no room for doubt to creep in. Doubt is the precursor to fear, and I knew that I couldn't experience my perfect moment if I was afraid. I had to visualize and rehearse enough to remove all doubt. But beyond that, I also visualized how it would feel if it never seemed doable. What if, after so much work, I was afraid to try? What if I was wasting my time and I would never feel comfortable in such an exposed position? There were no easy answers, but Elkat meant enough to me that I would put in the work and find out. Some of my preparations were more mundane. This is a photo of my friend Conrad Anker climbing up the bottom of Elkat with an empty backpack. We spent the day climbing together to a specific crack in the middle of the wall that was choked with loose rocks. They made that section of climbing difficult and potentially dangerous because any misstep might knock a loose rock to the ground and kill a passing climber or hiker. So we carefully removed the rocks, loaded them into the pack, and rappelled back down. Take a second to imagine how ridiculous it feels to climb 1,500 feet up a wall just to fill a backpack full of rocks. <laughs> it's never that easy to carry a pack full of rocks around. It's even harder on the side of a cliff. It may have felt silly, but it still had to get done. I needed everything to feel perfect if I was ever going to climb the route without a rope. After two seasons of working specifically toward a potential free solo of El Cap, I finally finished all my preparations. I knew every handhold and foothold on the whole route, and I knew exactly what to do. Basically, I was ready. It was time to solo El Cap. On June 3, 2017, I woke up early, ate my usual breakfast of muesli and fruit, and made it to the base of the wall before sunrise. I felt confident as I looked up the wall, and felt even better as I started climbing. About 500 feet up, I reached a slab very similar to the one that had given me so much trouble on Half Dome, but this time was different. I scouted every option, including hundreds of feet of wall to either side, and I knew exactly what to do and how to do it. I had no doubts; I just climbed right through. Even the difficult and strenuous sections passed by with ease. I was perfectly executing my routine. I rested for a moment below the boulder problem, and then climbed it just as I had practiced so many times with the rope on. My foot shot across to the wall on the left without hesitation, and I knew that I'd done it. Climbing Half Dome had been a big goal, and I did it. But I didn't get what I really wanted. I didn't achieve mastery. 
I was hesitant and afraid, and it wasn't the experience that I wanted. But El Cap was different. With 600 feet to go, I felt like the mountain was offering me a victory lap. I climbed with a smooth precision and enjoyed the sounds of the birds swooping around the cliff. It all felt like a celebration. And then I reached the summit after three hours and 56 minutes of glorious climbing. It was the climb that I wanted, and it felt like mastery. Thank you. Oh wow! Uh, just just before we get into our usual comments, there, Kate, I, I noticed at the end there maybe that last paragraph, that last three or four sentences, felt very rushed. I wonder if he was looking down at the timer and saw that it was running out. I would have liked to see maybe those last sentences about the three hours of climbing. It felt like mastery, and it was the climb he'd wanted. That really slowed down because it was kind of what we were getting towards with this this whole story about climbing that first mountain and then all this preparation. But it it just felt a bit rushed, a bit glossed over right there at the end. And, and yeah, I wonder if he was looking at the timer that had run out, or maybe it was a case of he knew he was near the end of his speech,、uh, and if he just gets this last bit done, he'll be done, and he can leave. And maybe he's feeling nervous,、um, and right at the end there it came out. But would just like to see that slow down. Yeah, fair comment.、Um, all right, standard two questions: What did we see, and what message did we pull out? Let's start with the message. I believe this talk overall has been very clever. Alex has done this massive athletic feat, which I think maybe nobody before him had done. And it'll be really easy to put a guy on stage and just say, "Tell us about how you climbed this mountain." And he comes up and goes, "Oh, it was really hard. And I tried this thing. I did preparation. I got up there, and it was great. And here's the photos I took." But what happened was either he or the people he worked with. Pulled out. What is the message? What is the relatable message about you climbing El Capitan that other people can relate to their own personal lives? So there was that relatable message that I think came down to that I think leaned on how important preparation was, how important or the difference between kind of lucking or accidenting your way up that first mountain and perfecting and memorizing and preparing for that second mountain that felt so much more satisfying to him. I'm sure that's a message that's relatable to all sorts of scenarios. In people's lives, in so for me, I think the message was mastery comes from the preparation and the planning, and that leads to satisfaction effectively.、Hmm. What was the message you heard in there, Kate? So for me, I didn't get a strong message, and you know what? I don't think that it needed a strong message. Normally, we do need to justify the act of speaking with some sort of message, some sort of take home, something for the audience. But sometimes people just do really cool stuff, and other people want to hear about it. So I don't feel that I wanted or needed to learn anything. I just wanted to hear about this really cool thing that he did, and I have no issue with not learning or anything from it. Yes, you need to justify the act of speaking, which is effectively、uh, we've got a twelve-minute TED talk here. What value are you going to add to the audience's twelve minutes、um, that justifies you standing there and speaking? And often, yes, a message that you can take away and think about is the easiest way to do that. But there are other ways to justify the act of speaking. Think about comedy. Often there's not a message, but pure entertainment. Pure entertainment. Yeah. Yeah.、Uh, yeah okay. Yep. 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 So this guy, where it's like,、um, you know, how does he justify the act of speaking? Well, there's maybe not a strong message. Like I got a bit of a message out of there. We got to hear about this really cool story, and I'm sure there's things in there that just make you think. Certainly, also provides a little bit of a that behind-the-scenes view of this guy who made the free solo movie and did this massive athletic feat.、Mm. So yeah, I think what, kind of what I say stands that I didn't get a message particularly, but certainly was absolutely entertained, really enjoyed it, which justifies the use of my time and the use of the audience's time. 
and those comments we made about this feeling a little bit mechanical is almost forgotten because what do you remember about this speech? It's it's going to be, I remember the story he told, I remember the, uh, the journey he took us on. It's still, I think, overall a good speech. Yeah, the delivery certainly did not detract from the story and the, the entertainment value. Yes. Okay, on to physicality, what did we see? I have two comments on what I saw. The first is to do with his visuals. So we mentioned he has a PowerPoint there and it's been used well. He has a couple of really good, really striking photos that help us to visualize the places he is. And even the slide right at the end is the photo of him peeling out over the top of the mountain, you know, big grin on his face and he looks absolutely knackered. The, the use of photos in this PowerPoint has certainly added not distracted from the presentation at all. And they're actually, I think, looking at them, they're professional photos, the way they're sort of framed and composed. So good use of the PowerPoint visuals there. I want to talk about his gestures. Obviously, he was talking about climbing. And what I mean by that is specifically he was saying, I had to put my hand here, I had to put my foot here. And he kind of did these weird half climbing gestures with his hands. At one point, he was talking about having to kick his foot Mm. and he kind of kicked his leg out. And it felt like he wasn't committed to those gestures. It was like, oh, don't forget that you've got to, you know, kick your foot out when you're talking about kick your foot out. I would have really liked to see him commit to that, to really do that with more confidence or more strength. It just felt a little bit half-hearted. Again, I'm really picking on his mechanical delivery. Really? Because I disagree. I liked his gestures. I liked how he physically moved. Because I I think if you're talking about rock climbing or you're talking about driving a car or you're talking about paddling a kayak, it's really easy to mime that, like almost pantomime. Mm. And there's a bit of me just thinks, I kind of know what it looks like to reach out and grab a rock. But yeah, when he got to those times about, I had to put my foot out just so uh, and, and reach out, I thought it was just a bit of a hint, a bit of a motion towards what he had to do rather than the exact sort of where that exactly was that he had to put his hand. I quite like that just sort of hinted towards had to move his foot over there and his hand up there. So I actually quite liked how he moved in contrast. Yeah, there you go. So I'm really hammering this guy for his mechanical delivery. (laughs) It's a good speech, Kate. Leave him alone. (laughs) Oh, it it was. It really was. But I just want to point out in the comments under, we're watching the YouTube version of this, there's a comment that says, This guy speaks in front of 1,000 people as mechanically as he climbs. He's a machine. (laughs) But then there's another comment that I really like, which is, this video has confirmed my suspicion that public speaking is, in fact, the scariest thing in the world. (laughs) And this third comment, I think, really sums it up nicely. Can kind of tell this environment, public speaking, is his idea of a nightmare, like he'd still rather be ropeless on some insanely difficult rock face somewhere, but he still does it because it's necessary to promote what he's doing and to inspire others. That's courage. I think that sums it up beautifully. Absolutely. A little bit of acknowledgement that um, public speaking's scary. It's not this guy's natural habitat, I guess. He's not on the side of a mountain. But damn, he's an impressive human. So thank you for listening to episode... Alex Honold at TED 2018 with How I Climbed a 3,000-Foot Vertical Cliff. And if you would like to watch this TED Talk, there is a link down in the show notes. Thanks for listening to today's show. We'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know more, check out presentationboss.com.au slash podcast, where you'll find the show notes for today with links to everything we've discussed. If you have a speech you'd like us to listen to and break down on the show, flick us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. We're always happy to hear your thoughts or take suggestions for future episodes. 
Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information of this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Have a great week. It's often said you shouldn't read the YouTube comments, but man, they're funny. My favourite one under here is Free Solo, the best horror movie of all time. I like, thank God he didn't fall. His balls would have fractured the Earth's crust on impact. (laughs) 